You may have noticed in your bulletins that I've entitled this sermon, Tempted and Tried, I Need a Great Savior. Now, that's something of a departure from my normal practice of coming up with sermon titles, if you pay attention to sermon titles. Um, usually I take a key phrase from the text of Scripture that we're going to study together, and I just make that phrase the title of the sermon. Uh, the title for, for this sermon, Tempted and Tried, I Need a Great Savior, it comes from Elisha Hoffman's wonderful hymn, I Must Tell Jesus. As I read the, the passage that we'll be setting together this morning, uh, over the past few weeks and even uh, this week, that phrase kept coming to my mind, tempted and tried, I need a great Savior. Uh, a few weeks ago we began our study in Matthew's Gospel, and, and we were given an amazing introduction to Jesus' birth and his early childhood. This morning, in Matthew chapters 3 and 4, we actually meet the man. We, we hear him speak. We, we see him act. We see him resist temptation even in the midst of a severe trial. In Matthew chapters 3 and 4, we meet the great Savior himself. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the pews, then you can find the passage beginning on page 808. 808. And I'm going to be referring to the, the text a lot, so it will be helpful for you to be there in it. And while you're turning there, let me remind us a little bit of the background concerning Matthew's Gospel. The, the focus of Matthew's Gospel appears to be that he's trying to persuade uh, his Jewish readers that Jesus is the Christ. That He's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. We saw that in our study of chapters 1 and 2. And over and over again, Matthew would describe an event, and then he would say something like, and this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Matthew would then he'd quote a prophet to make his point. We've learned several things about Jesus from our first study. We've learned that Jesus was the hope of God's promises to Abraham and David. We learned that Jesus was Abraham's offspring, through whom the nations would be blessed. We learn that Jesus was David's greater son who would reign eternally on the throne. Perhaps one of the most powerful things that Matthew has said to us so far is that Jesus would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew even told us the purpose of God's coming to earth. That God would come to earth in the human person of Jesus Christ for the purpose of saving sinners. Who Jesus is and what He came to do is what Matthew continues to unfold in these next two chapters. Matthew wants us to recognize that Jesus is the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, the Son of God, who has come to save His people from their sins, as chapter 1, verse 21 makes clear. So if you want the thrust of these two chapters, and the main point of this whole sermon, in a single sentence, that's it. Jesus is the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, the Son of God, who has come to save His people from their sins. So now I want us to see how Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, the Son of God who has come to save His people from their sins by first reading all of Matthew chapters 3 and 4. It's a long passage, but the Apostle Paul told Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, 4, verse 13. And so we're going to do that now. So please listen and follow along as I read Matthew chapters 3 and 4. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. (coughs) Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all all, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to me, said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Amen. I, I hope that in reading, in the reading of those two chapters, you were able to catch glimpses and insights into who Jesus is and what he came to do. These two chapters are comprised of six scenes, which the ESV editors, the uh, translations that are there in the pews, the ESV editors, they've correctly identified and marked out through their section headings. In these six scenes, Matthew presents a single picture of Jesus from different angles. It's though as Jesus is the subject of Matthew's study, and he's giving us a 360 degree look at the Savior. Each scene has connections to the Savior and to sin. Which is, of course, appropriate given that Matthew's focus in this section is to present Jesus as the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, the Son of God, who has come to save His people from their sins. And we're going to walk through each of these scenes now, and I've listed them there in your bullets, and there's an insert in there that should have uh, these scenes laid out for you. Um, and we're going to walk through these. Let's begin with scene number one, where we meet the Lord and King who has come to baptize. The Lord and King who has come to baptize. This is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 12. 1 through 12. That's the scene we're looking at. So the Lord and King who has come to baptize. Now perhaps you think it's odd uh, that I've entitled this point, The Lord and King who has come to baptize. And the first person that we meet in this scene is not Jesus, but John the Baptist. Well, that's an important observation. But take a look at John the Baptist's words there in verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. John was speaking about Jesus. And the focus of John's ministry in the words of verse 3 was that of preparing the way of the Lord. Everything about John's ministry was calibrated around the eventual arrival of the Lord and King. He preached about the kingdom of heaven because the king of the kingdom had arrived. He, he ministered in the wilderness, dressed like a, a prophet of old and had, well, we'll call it a unique diet of locusts and honey. Also, the prophecies would be fulfilled and the stage set for the arrival of Jesus. Now, it's not hard to see how John fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy mentioned there in verse 3. After all, he was standing in the wilderness, preaching and carrying out and crying out. 
But there's an unmentioned prophecy which he fulfills that Matthew expects his Jewish readers to pick up on. In the very last chapter of the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we find some strange words. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Those are strange words in their original setting. Because if I'm, I'm not mistaken, Elijah had been removed from the earth hundreds of years before. Now the funny thing about Elijah was that when he ministered on earth, he dressed in a funny way. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we learn that Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Ah, and so when we read Matthew's description in verse 4 of John, the picture begins to fall into place. The Lord's promise to send Elijah is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Elijah, or, or better yet, a prophet like Elijah, in his vein, in his kind of ministry, would come before the day of the Lord arrives. And that is what is happening with John the Baptist and Jesus. John is announcing that the day of the Lord, really the Lord himself, has arrived. And I'm sure that you're all wondering about the diet of locusts and honey. John's diet is unusual, and it is intentional. While Israelites were allowed to eat locusts, far and away the most common reference to locusts in the Old Testament is a reference to judgment. Locusts are normally attached to the idea and concept of judgment. So you can think about the plagues in Egypt, like of locusts, or the prophecy in Joel. We see judgment, that judgment connection. And what about honey? Well, what, what do the Old Testament references to honey make you think of? Perhaps a land flowing with milk and honey. Or as the psalmist says, God's word is like honey to my mouth. You see, judgment and blessing are actually encapsulated in John's diet of locusts and honey. And look again at what John says Jesus will do in verse 11. Pick up reading about halfway through that verse. He will baptize. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat, gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is the Lord and King who has come to baptize. Some he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In other words, some he will regenerate in the power of the Holy Spirit and save. And some he will baptize with fire. Some he will bathe in his grace. He will gather his wheat, love that phrase, his wheat into the barn. And some he will burn in his wrath. The chaff will meet his unquenchable fire. Encapsulated in that ministry is judgment and mercy. Judgment and blessing. Jesus has come to deal with sinners. Some he will save and some he will punish. This is why John preaches a message of repentance. He calls sinners to prepare for the coming of the king by repenting, by turning away from their sin and turning to God for forgiveness. But John sees some in the crowd that he's skeptical about, doesn't he? He basically questions the repentance of the official religious leaders and teachers of the Jewish people. John calls them snakes. John points out that they're presumptuous. They presume that God is well pleased with them because they're of Jewish descent. They're, they're Abraham's children. A particular heritage 
does not mean you are on happy terms with the Lord of heaven. What the coming king is looking for is those who are truly sorry for their sins. And yet, repentance is more than a feeling of sorrow. It's that coupled with a change of direction. Repentance takes place when and where a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and a true sense of the mercy of God, with grief and hatred of his sin, turns from it to God with full purpose to endeavor after new obedience. And this repentance is a gracious gift of God. In the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives what He commands. All that God calls us to do, He gives us the grace to do. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned away from them? Are you still repenting of your sins? That's something that we need to remember about repentance. It occurs over the whole course of our lives. And Jesus is committed to the repentance of His people. That's why He baptizes them with the Holy Spirit and regenerates them so that they can and do repent. Well, Jesus is not only the Lord and King who has come to baptize, He is also the Son who has come to fulfill all righteousness. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. The second scene that Matthew presents to us. He is the Son who has come to fulfill all righteousness. So finally, in Matthew's Gospel, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, the Lord whom John has been preparing the way for, steps into the picture there in verse 13. Matthew tells us that Jesus came to John with the express purpose of being baptized by Him. John doesn't like this though. At first he attempts to refuse Jesus. Why would John do that? John says that he needs to be baptized by Jesus and not the other way around. John refuses Jesus because John knows that Jesus is the promised one. John knows that Jesus is mightier than he, as he said in verse 11. Jesus is the Savior, not John. And John knew that. There's another reason that it is at first glance not right for Jesus to be baptized by John. Ask yourself, what was the purpose of John's baptism? Well, the purpose of John's baptism was for one to express their repentance of sin. It was a public confession of sin and the need of God's mercy. But Jesus is the one who came to save His people from their sins. And Jesus never sinned. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that, that Jesus was without sin. He knew no sin. In other words, He committed no sin. Jesus had nothing to repent of or be forgiven for. Jesus knew this. But He also knew that this had to be done now in order to fulfill all righteousness. And here we need to observe three things about Jesus' baptism. First, it was God's righteous will that John baptized Jesus. It was God's righteous will that John baptized Jesus. Sin is disobedience to God's righteous will and Jesus wasn't about to be disobedient. He knew the mission that His Father had sent Him on. And this was a part of it. And in connection with this obedience, in this act, Jesus identifies with sinners. He identifies with those whom He came to save. Though He was without sin, in this baptism, He publicly confesses that He will now live as the righteous substitute for sinners. He is living and walking in the place of sinners for them. 
Second, in his baptism, Jesus' heavenly sonship is announced and confirmed. Speaking from heaven in verse 16, God the Father announces that he is pleased with his son's obedience and with his willingness to take up this mission of saving sinners. Adam, the very first man, has also been called God's son. You see that in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. And so has Israel. You see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. But here, Jesus is called God's son. Jesus is God's son in a different way than Adam and Israel. He has been God the Father's son from all eternity as the second person of the triune Godhead. And here, Jesus fulfills the promise of Isaiah 42, 1, where we read, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. Jesus is the Son and Savior who came for sinners. And we see this in his baptism. Third, in Jesus' baptism, we learn that this was the right time. This is the right time for Jesus to begin his mission of saving sinners. Notice that little word now there in verse 15. Now. The Bible teaches us that God had an intricate plan from all eternity to redeem and save sinners and that it was perfectly timed. The, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the right time in the course of history, God sent His Son. And this was the identification of God's Son. And there's something else. All those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of those who are united to Him through believing that He is the Savior and Son who has come to fulfill all righteousness, become sons and daughters of God with whom the Father is well pleased. If you are a believer, and if you have ever felt like you had an earthly father whom you could never please, then brother or sister in Christ, you need to know that the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, is pleased with you because you have been united to His Son in faith. Jesus is the Lord and King who has come to baptize. He is the Son who has come to fulfill all righteousness. And He is the Savior who has come to defeat Satan and sin. And this is what we learn next in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. He's the Savior who has come to defeat Satan and sin. Now just scanning over these verses, over Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, reminds us that Jesus faced off with Satan in the wilderness. But notice how He got there. He was led by the Spirit. These temptations were ordained by God. God had a purpose in these temptations. To see Jesus live in trusting obedience where Adam and Israel and where we have all failed to. Like Israel, Jesus was led into the desert. Think back to the Exodus and the nation of Israel. God had freed His people from slavery and He led them into the desert to test them. As we learn from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. We see this replay of Israel's wanderings. As Matthew tells us that Jesus had been in the desert fasting 40 days and 40 nights. 
These words recall Israel's 40-year desert wanderings. And they also recall Moses' 40-day fast. Just like Israel in the desert, and Moses in his fast, Jesus was hungry. Now Jesus is ready for the first temptation. The scene is set. God's pleasing Son is standing in the desert. Standing in the same place that Israel was hundreds of years before. And He is hungry. And you may be wondering, what's the point of Jesus replaying Israel's life in the desert? Well, just to be clear, Jesus is not simply replaying Israel's life in the desert. He's living a new life. One that hasn't yet been lived. This new life that Jesus must live before God in the desert and in the face of these temptations begins with Adam. Notice that the first temptation is a food temptation. Just as Adam and Eve were tempted to eat the forbidden food, so Satan tempts Jesus with food when he has been forbidden to eat. And consider how much greater the difficulty of this test is for Jesus than it was for Adam. Adam was in a beautiful garden where he had everything he could have ever wanted to eat. Jesus was in a desert waste. There was nothing he could have ever wanted to eat. Adam sinned. And he was expelled from the garden. Time passed and God called out for himself a special people to be a reflection of his character in the watching world. God called Israel out of Egypt into the desert to be his people. And what did Israel do? Well, the very same thing that Adam did. They grumbled. They rebelled against God in the desert when they were hungry. We need someone else to live the life that we all should have lived And this is precisely what Jesus is doing for us in this desert, facing off with the devil. In the second temptation, Satan quotes God's word and twists its meaning. That's been his practice from the beginning. Satan has taken a promise of God from Psalm 91, and he has encouraged Jesus to demand that God make good on that promise. But there's a huge difference in asking for God's help and demanding it. In the third and final temptation, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. It's striking. It's a striking invitation because Jesus came to redeem people from all of the kingdoms of this world. And here he has the opportunity to bring all the peoples of the earth under his rule for seemingly very little cost. It least won't cost him his life on the cross. Glory without suffering. It's attractive, isn't it? It's what we want, isn't it? We, we want good things without the cost of them. But Jesus did not come to do the will of Satan and establish an earthly kingdom. He came to do the will of God and establish a heavenly kingdom. And notice in these temptations that Satan is attempting to break Jesus' allegiance to God. And at the same time, bring God's pleasure in His Son to an end. He is trying to fracture the united Godhead, the triune God. And our very salvation is bound up with whether or not Jesus defeats sin and Satan in these temptations. Just as with the previous two temptations, Jesus sees through this third one as well. And He commands Satan to leave. Friends, we we need to see something more in these temptations than Jesus as a model for how to deal with our temptation. It's true that Jesus is a model for how to deal with our temptation. Yes, He quotes Scripture, and so should we when we are faced 
with temptation. But Jesus is so much more than our model. He's our Savior. What we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. We need more than our own strength in the face of temptation. We need the strength of Jesus Christ. What's being communicated here in these temptations is that Jesus is breaking the old pattern of disobedience and rebellion against God. The pattern that Adam and Israel and all of humanity has followed in. Jesus is representing a new humanity before God. He will not follow the pattern of Adam and Israel. He will fulfill the pattern that God had always intended for Adam and Israel and you and me to worship and serve God only. The devil obeys Jesus. Command to leave. And notice that Jesus is ministered to by angels. And that word ministered basically means food and care. Jesus was hungry. Satan tempted him to doubt God. Now God, in his perfect time, brings him food and everything he needs. Jesus has won. Not only has he won a fierce battle with the devil, but he has won a new life for his children, for you and for me. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read that we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. In these temptations, in the entirety of Jesus' life, he was without sin. This great and utterly unique attribute is what qualifies him to be our suitable and all-sufficient Savior. Brother or sister, if you are facing great temptation, remember Jesus' victory in the wilderness. Remember that he knows exactly what you are facing. He knows just how enticing the sin is that you are facing. And He knows the full strength of its pull because He resisted it to the very end where you and I have not. And remember that He said no to sin and Satan so that you and I, in the power of the Holy Spirit, can say no too. Look to Him and rejoice in the truth that He has overcome temptation for you and ask Him and plead with Him to help you to overcome your temptation too. Our Savior, He remained sinless in the wilderness. <coughs> in doing so, He proved that in Him there is no darkness at all. Jesus proved that He is indeed the light of the world. He is, as our next scene makes clear, the light who has come to preach good news to those who are in darkness. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. The light who has come to preach. Now, Matthew's goal in giving us this glimpse of Jesus is straightforward in a roundabout kind of way. Matthew wants to signal the virtual end of John the Baptist's preaching ministry in verse 12, while at the same time marking the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry in 17. The end of one marks the beginning of another, and sandwiched in between the end of one ministry and the beginning of another ministry, Matthew plays the role of a tour guide through the land of Israel asserting that Jesus' journey was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. 
The fulfillment of this prophecy and Jesus' move to Galilee shows us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This is who His preaching ministry is going to be aimed at. Those in Galilee had very little knowledge of the Lord. They were living in moral and spiritual darkness. But Jesus' arrival there and His preaching ministry there meant that a light had dawned upon that region. And Jesus is that light. A region that is surprisingly dominated by Gentiles for this Jewish Messiah. Jesus, you see, is the Savior of sinners. He came to preach to sinners. And both Jews and Gentiles are sinners. All have sinned. All need to repent. All need this great Savior that we see here. And here we need to pause and observe something about Jesus' preaching ministry. Did you notice that He picks right up where John the Baptist left off? Remember what John said in chapter 3, verse 2? John said... Uh, that uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then notice what Jesus says here in verse uh, 17 of chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We, we need to think about what Jesus means by the kingdom of heaven. I, I'm sure that it will come as no surprise to you. But the kingdom is indivisibly connected to the king. It, it comes when he comes. He is the one who brings the kingdom. We do not. And in some respects, He brings the kingdom in stages. As we'll read through Matthew's Gospel, we'll see that the kingdom's here. We'll see that it's actually in the near future. And that it's actually in the distant future. It is here, yet it is near, and it is still to arrive in the distant future. It has come, and it is coming. Its present arrival and its future arrival is connected with the critical junctures of the King's work. What I mean by that... It's connected with Jesus' incarnation, His resurrection, and His return in judgment. It arrives with Jesus' arrival. It will advance in His resurrection and exaltation. And the kingdom will come in the King's return in judgment. But, but what does this mean for us? What does it mean that the kingdom has come? This means something for us. And Jesus makes that clear. Notice what He says before He mentions the kingdom of heaven. Same word John said. He says, repent. The kingdom is concerned with repentance. Those who are part of the kingdom are concerned with repentance. The arrival of the king and his kingdom implies the need for repentance. With the arrival of the king and his kingdom comes the hope of reconciliation with God. That we can be forgiven and received into his kingdom. And yet the arrival of the king and his kingdom also comes with the danger of retribution from God. If you do not repent, if you do not receive God's king, if you reject God's king, then you reject him and his kingdom. And you should not think or hope to expect anything other than to be rejected by the king when you meet him face to face. Jesus is calling out to those in darkness. He is calling out for them to come into the light, to come to Him, to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He's calling out to sinners like you and me to turn away from our rebellion against God, to turn away from living for ourselves and trying to create our own kingdoms on this earth, and to turn to Him in faith. With this word, repent, Jesus issues as a command. Did you notice that? And I wonder if you recognize the gracious nature of Jesus' command to 
to repent of your sins. Can you, can you see how that is a gracious command from the king? Here is a command from the king of heaven to come into his kingdom. He could have refused entry to all. He could have told us that we are all unfit for his kingdom. And yet, he commands us to repent. He commands us to turn away from our sin and to turn to him, believing that he lived the righteous, sinless life that we have not. He commands us to believe that he died on the cross, bearing the sins and the punishment for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. He commands us to believe that he conquered sin and death in his resurrection from the grave three days after his death on the cross. He commands us to believe that in him there is salvation for all who believe and a home in his heavenly kingdom. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sins and come under the loving and gracious rule of the King of Heaven, then I want to invite you to give up your life to him now through repentance and faith. And if you want to know more about what that means, what it means to live under the rule of this loving, gracious, good king. Then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member or co-worker you came with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about than what it means to live under the loving rule of King Jesus. Well, having considered the truth that Jesus is the light who has come to preach the good news to our dark hearts, we now turn to consider Matthew's next scene where he presents Jesus as the rabbi who has come to call disciples. Jesus is the rabbi who has come to call disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, we see this. We see Jesus call his first disciples. And we already know that Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. So that word means. For he's been preaching and teaching in Galilee. We'll only see this teaching expand and deepen as we read and study through Matthew's gospel. Every good teacher and rabbi has his disciples, his followers who will learn his teaching and way of life and duplicate it, imitate it. Jesus in these verses begins to call men to follow him. We learn that following this rabbi means that these disciples will carry out a mission. These ordinary fishermen are now, on behalf of Jesus, called to fish for men. This theme of fishing for men is actually not new to these Jewish fishermen. It's actually very old. Hundreds of years before Jesus made this statement, the prophet Jeremiah wrote that God was sending many to go and fish for men in order to catch them, to bring them to God for judgment. You're going to read about that in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16. But we need to remember that Jesus' call to repent is a gracious command. It is good news that the King of the Kingdom of Heaven is calling people to come under His saving rule. This good news turns that concept of fishing for men for judgment on its head. Instead of sending men out to catch them and bring people to God for judgment, Jesus is intending to send men out in order that sinners might be saved from judgment. That they might be caught in the net of God's grace and mercy. As Christians, that's what we're called to do. And these disciples would soon give the church the mandate to go out and to preach the gospel. To be fishers of men. And, and one of the things that I took great delight in, in thinking about this while studying this passage, was the mercy of God in sending fishers of men into my life. 
about that for you. Who did God mercifully, lovingly send into your life to catch you in the net of His grace? Take a moment this week. Pray, thank, praise God for His kindness and love to you in sending fishers of men, whether they be parents or Sunday school teachers or co-workers or friends or strangers. Praise God for them. And let's be them. Aren't you amazed that God would be so gracious to send fishers of men to you? We have a merciful and good God who delights in using ordinary men and women. I mean, it couldn't get more ordinary in that day and age than to be a fisherman. Ordinary people like you and me. He calls us to catch others in the net of God's grace. So for God's glory, let's be a congregation who fishes for men. We've got good news to share. And everyone needs this good news. So let's share it with joy and trust in God's power to save. This call to fish for men has a prior requirement though. Requires that they follow Him. And Matthew doesn't let on, but a number of these men have actually met Jesus before. We know that from John's Gospel. Jesus had already had significant interactions with them. This call to follow Him was in one sense probably not a great surprise to them. Probably had time to think about it, what it meant. But what is a great surprise, no matter how much time you have to think about this call, is just how costly it is to follow Jesus. Think about it. They leave their nets. And two of them leave their father. In one way or another, we're told that these four men, they leave their nets behind. They leave prosperous work, work that, they would, that would bring them personal and financial gain. The fact is that these men would bear such a costly allegiance in terms of personal finances is not what is most striking to me about this passage. What is most striking to me about this passage is that at least two of them, two of these men, would leave behind their own father. Now, given that they had known Jesus in advance of this call, perhaps their father knew that this was coming. Perhaps he was okay with it. I don't quite know. Nevertheless, they still leave behind a relationship that is perhaps the most important earthly relationship to them. Sometimes this is what it costs to follow Jesus. These disciples are displaying that all earthly allegiances are secondary allegiances. They're displaying that allegiance to Jesus is primary. Comes before everything else. If Jesus has called you to be his disciple, then in one way or another, you've borne a cost. Perhaps you've sacrificed financially to follow him. Perhaps your family relationships have been challenged by your discipleship and that your family's dismissed you. Or perhaps your career hasn't taken off like it could have because your allegiance to Jesus is greater than your allegiance to work and money and your job. All of those who have followed Jesus have probably borne some cost in one way or another. And if in following Jesus, we've not borne any cost, then perhaps we ought to examine our lives to see whether or not Jesus is the rabbi that we are really following. So far, we've learned that Jesus is the Lord and King who has come to baptize, the Son who has come to fulfill all righteousness, the Savior who has come to defeat Satan and sin, the light of the world who has come to preach, and the rabbi who has come to call disciples to follow Him. Now, in the final scene, we see that the Redeemer has come. Jesus is the Redeemer who has come to reverse the curse. Jesus is the Redeemer who has come to reverse 
the curse. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. In, Matthew, in chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew continues to set Jesus' ministry in the context of the region of Galilee. He's not only teaching powerfully the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, that he's come to save people from their sins, but he's also demonstrating that he has power over sin and its effects. We should not be surprised by the close connection with Jesus teaching his words and his works, the miracles that he performs. His miraculous works here mentioned in these verses do not simply uh, provide the exclamation point on his words, but they validate them. His words are true. And I love how Matthew describes Jesus' healing ministry too. Notice the every and all he uses there. He says that Jesus healed every disease and every affliction among the people. In other words, there was not a disease or affliction that he met that he could not heal. Matthew basically restates this point in verse 24 too. Just after mentioning that his fame spread through all, all Syria, Matthew points out that all the sick were brought to him and that he healed them. These diseases and afflictions all represent, stand for, the effects of the fall and the curse. When Adam sinned and fell in the Garden of Eden, all sorts of infirmities, afflictions, and difficulties entered into the human experience of life. Jesus is showing us that He is the Redeemer who has come to reverse the effects of the curse. He has come to overcome the curse, or in the words of a great Christmas carol, He's come to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And be sure not to gloss over Jesus' tender compassion displayed in these verses. He never turned away anyone who came to Him and who was in need. He loves those who are in need and come to Him. Which brings us back to where we began and where I'd like us to conclude. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior. Friends, brothers and sisters, have you seen yourself and your need in these two chapters? Have you seen yourself in, in the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are trusting in their own religious heritage rather than in Jesus? Have you seen your need to repent like John and Jesus preached? Have you seen that you lack the righteousness that God requires? Have you seen that too often you lived, you've lived in darkness and continue on in giving in to your flesh? More than all of this, in these two chapters, have you seen how great our Savior is? Have you seen that He is the one who graciously baptizes His people in the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you seen how He is the one who fulfills all righteousness for you so that you might be called God's child with whom He's well pleased? Have you, have you seen His victory over Satan and sin for you? Have you seen how He entered into this dark world to find you, one living in darkness? Have you seen how He graciously sent fishers of men after you? And have you seen His power over sickness and sin that will one day be known in full? This week, when you inevitably find yourself tempted by sin, Satan, 
and tried by the difficulties of this world and crying out, I need a great Savior. You can know from Matthew chapters 3 and 4 that you have the Savior you need. Praise God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are immensely grateful that you in your kindness and love have sent your Son to live and die for us and to be raised for us. Lord, we thank you for giving us such a full picture of Jesus. You could have just given us a few words that you sent your Son, that he lived a righteous life, and that he died, that he was raised, and that we have salvation. But you've given us so much more that we can know about our Savior and appreciate and treasure about Him. And we thank you for these words. We thank you that you have shown us that He has endured temptations and trials because that's our life experience. And we need a Savior who can overcome them. And you have showed us that you have given Him to us. How gracious and generous you are to us. Oh Lord, continue to fill us with love for your Son, we pray and ask. In Jesus' name, amen.